0: 29th happens once every four years. Apparently, we need one extra day in the calendar every four years in order to keep everything in sync with the earth on its axes and how often it tips back and forth, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, apparently, once every four years, we need to add a day in order to keep everything the way it should be. Now, leap day has also taken on another meaning or another matter of significance. Uh, Apparently, Leap Day is the one day every four years when... You don't have to go to work. Good, good, good start. Uh, Not what I was looking for. You don't have my notes. Uh, Clearly. It's the one day in the calendar when traditionally... There we go. Ladies can ask men to do the, or ladies are invited to do the proposing. February 29th. Apparently in Scotland, an unmarried Queen Margaret allegedly enacted a law in 1288 allowing women to propose on leap year day. But there was a catch. The proposer had to wear a red petticoat that was a skirt, under a skirt, to warn her intended that she planned to pop the question that evening. So, we men are not great with surprises. And so, this was intended to warn the man uh, when he uh, went to pick up, I guess, uh, on that day, on that evening, his, uh, his lover, that, uh, that there would be a little bit of a warning that the, uh, that the question would be popped. So, you guys um, that are dating... Um, if you want to be the one that does the proposing, you've got two weeks because you never know what happens on February 29th. So uh, so think about that and take that, take that very seriously. On the other hand, uh, apparently if the woman did do the proposing and the man was to be brave enough to say no, then he was expected to buy the woman a silk gown or by the mid-20th century that had become a fur coat. And so there you go, guys. If you, if you uh, have enough guts to say no, prepare yourself. Uh, make sure you've got the gift ready. February 29th is only two weeks away. And so uh, prepare yourself. When I grew up, it was actually, um, there was something else that was kind of a fun deal. Maybe it still is somewhat, I'm not totally sure. Um, for me, back then, I thought it was the whole month of November. But apparently there's a very specific day, and that is November 13th. And that is, can anybody help me out? Sadie Hawkins. Very good. Those people were all in my uh, demographic, the people that knew the answer to that question. Uh, apparently, Sadie Hawkins is another day in the calendar when traditionally women are invited to, allowed to, suggested that they are the ones that make the move. Apparently, Sadie Hawkins began as a result of a cartoon artist by the name of Al Cap on November 15th. 1937, in the comic strip Little Abner, which was set in the fictional mountain village of Dogpatch, Kentucky. Sadie, who was considered to be the homeliest gal in all them hills, she was the daughter of Hezekiah Hawkins, the town's most wealthy and powerful man. Because, and I'm quoting here so don't jump on me, because Sadie was so ugly, she couldn't land herself a husband. It terrified Hezekiah, her dad, to think that his ancient 35-year-old daughter would suffer the worst humiliation a woman could ever experience, and that was being an old maid. So he took the matter into his own hands. Calling all the bachelors in town, Hezekiah declared it Sadie Hawkins Day and ordered a race of all eligible bachelors with Sadie in pursuit. When a man was caught he would be legally bound to marry his daughter. The other town spinsters loved this idea so much that they declared Sadie Hawkins Day a mandatory annual event in Dogpatch, Kentucky. Who knew? The woman making the move. Keep that in mind. We are halfway through a good look at the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. Jesse told us that one of the reasons for checking in on or studying through the book of Ruth during this month is that it is a, a good fit for a month when we are trying to kind of as a church family celebrate the idea that God is actively at work in the lives of ordinary people during their ordinary life or their ordinary days. Many of you chose to be a part of uh, Wednesday night, this past Wednesday night at the Credit Union. We had a great, great time together where quite a few different stories were shared of how God, in unique ways, uh, connects with us in the middle of our ordinary lives. Kind of these little supernatural moments in the middle of very natural life. And uh, so we had great time uh, listening to, and hopefully those of you that did the sharing, sharing, those stories this past Wednesday, and uh, I want to invite you, like Rick already did, to come back again on Wednesday night for more stories about God and these little supernatural moments that happen in the middle of our ordinary. Jesse has already done a great job of introducing us to a very normal, ordinary woman named Ruth in the Bible, uh, who together with her uh, mother-in-law Naomi have experienced unspeakable tragedy and loss, both of them losing their husbands within a relatively short period of time. Naomi and her husband and their two sons traveled to a foreign country, The beginning of the book of Ruth, the story starts like that, to the country of Moab, a country that did not have a great reputation, a country that was kind of known for its immorality and its loose living, uh, likely they moved there kind of for economic reasons. Maybe the same type of thing. Why some people when they find themselves in desperate situation financially. They would move to an oil boom place or something like that. They, they go to a place where they're going to hopefully quickly kind of satisfy some of their economic needs. It seems as though that's why Naomi and her husband and their two sons moved to Moab. While they're there, um, they, they, uh, the two sons... Uh, much to the chagrin likely of their Jewish mother and father, decide that they are going to marry Moabite women. And uh, Moabite women did not have a great reputation in general. We don't know specifically about these two at that point in time, but in general. and, And so it would have been kind of very taboo to think that Jewish men would marry Moabite women. But Naomi kind of... Finds a way to deal with that. Soon after, it seems as though at least Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies. And it seems like not too long after that, both of her two sons also die. Somebody here suggested, or this morning actually, when I shared this at the Heritage, that, that uh, you don't want to make fun of something like this, but maybe they had the coronavirus back then. I'm not sure where that came from. Well, I know who, where it came from they die. And it's a very dark time for Naomi. Uh, She has her two daughter-in-laws. We don't know the specific relationship that they had back then, but Naomi kind of feels like pretty much life is useless. And she decides to try one more thing, and that is to go back to her homeland. Maybe, maybe, there's something there that can bring a little bit of light into her very dark existence. So, she begins to travel back to Moab. Uh, We've heard the story in in chapter 1 of how Ruth promises to go with her. Ruth is going to stick by her mother-in-law's side. And so Ruth and Naomi together, daughter-in-law and mother-in-law, move back to what was for the mother-in-law home many, many years earlier, the town of Bethlehem in the country of Judah. It's very possible, at least it seems that way, if you read through the first chapter, that Naomi has moved from being a grieving woman to being a grumpy woman. She's very self-absorbed. Life is miserable for her and she doesn't mind telling people about it. Uh, And uh, and yet, for some reason, Ruth decides that she's going to stick with her grumpy mother-in-law and she's going to try to help to take care of her. Last week, Jesse gave us a graphic description of how, in chapter two, this coincidental meeting happens between Ruth as she goes out into the field to try to glean some of the some of the uh, the grain that the John Deere combine had pushed out the back and she's uh, collecting some of that grain and she's going to uh, pick it up and, and bring it back home and and she's going to feed herself and her mother in law with some of this some of this grain that was left behind by the harvesters and in that process somehow coincidentally she ends up on the same field owned by this man whose name is Boaz and there seems to be this this magical connection that begins to happen almost immediately between Boaz and Ruth between this Moabite foreigner widow and this respected wealthy Jewish farmer and businessman There seems to be kind of this little supernatural that happens in the middle of of the natural. And for Naomi, it seems as though when you read through the chapter 2, it seems as though this introduces a little light for her way at the end of her very, very dark self-absorbed tunnel. Today we go to chapter 3. Ruth chapter 3. At the beginning, Jesse already kind of set the stage that this is kind of a walk through a story. And so again today we are going to walk through Ruth chapter 3. It's interesting really that uh, that we should do this today exactly because uh, this is I guess Valentine's Day weekend. It's one of the reasons why I wore, uh, dared to wear such a brilliant red shirt today. I thought I could get away with it today because it was Valentine's Day weekend. Uh, Also today is, like I said, only two weeks shy of Leap day, which is the day when women are traditionally allowed or encouraged to make the move. Because in many ways, Ruth chapter 3 is a story of women, a woman, and her mother-in-law's scheming, making the move. They are the ones that do the advancing as far as our relationship is concerned. And in many ways, if you want to read this and kind of take a, a bit of a different perspective, in some ways it actually is a bit of a romantic comedy, if you wanted to make a story out of it, or a movie out of it, uh, you could probably go there. There's some very unique and actually kind of funny things that happened in Ruth chapter 3 as far as this little romance is concerned. So let's start, Ruth chapter 3, verse 1. One day, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, Ruth, my daughter, should I not try to find a home for you? where you will be well provided for. See, parents do this. I don't know how you feel, young people, about uh, me saying this, but we parents would actually... You guys aren't even listening. I'm trying to tell you that we parents would actually love to do the marriage arranging for you guys. Ask your mom and dad. They would love to do this. They would love to find your prospective future. Right, parents? Wouldn't... We, yeah, I'm seeing some nods back there. So, so be warned, guys. We parents would love to do this for you. We'd love to arrange your future marriage for you. Find your future partner for you. And you don't believe this, but it would actually be a huge stress off your back. See, because, I, like this whole thing, I mean, it's stressful doing this dating thing. Like, I wonder what he thought when he said that. I think, I think she smiled at me. I wonder what that meant. I I don't think he likes me anymore. And on and on and on. Like it's very, very stressful. So if you would just allow your parents, go to your parents, tell them, if you would do this for me, I would be ever grateful. No? Well, know that your parents would be willing. They love you enough that they'd be willing to take the stress for you and find you a future prospective partner. Where were we? Naomi is going to do this for Ruth. She feels the responsibility. It's part of our DNA that we want to see, and not just as far as marriage goes, but that we want to as parents. We want to see our children well taken care of doing well in life, things are working out, and Naomi feels the same way, which by itself actually is a little bit unique, because it seems as though this is kind of the, uh, a bit of a shift for Naomi, because up until this point, Naomi has actually been very, 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 very self-absorbed. She's, all, she's been all about herself, and her own troubles, and her own darkness, and her own misery, and like I said, she's not been shy about telling other people about this, and suddenly here's this moment she's actually thinking about somebody else. It's a bit of a shift actually that if you spend time with people who are in a very, very dark place, it's actually a bit of a shift that you are often going to see when there comes a moment when all of a sudden you hear somebody who's been in a very low spot and all of a sudden they start asking questions about you and wondering about you and hearing you and thinking about others and somehow that's a bit of a transition where something healing is happening in a spirit and in a soul and sometimes a little bit of that has to actually be forced when you feel yourself in that low, low place because there is something healing and restorative about beginning to focus on others rather than rather than focusing on on yourself. And here's, that's, what, that's what Naomi does here. She begins to think about her daughter Ruth and what is happening in her life and how Ruth would be best taken care of, what she could do to help take care of her daughter Ruth. Let's go to, uh, to the next little section. Start with, uh, with verse 2. Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have been, A kinsman of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law Told her to do. Here, these two ladies start a little bit of a scheming thing, and I've got to believe that if um, if life is still normal, which I believe it is, then uh, then this actually continues to happen in the lives of uh, of young teenagers or middle aged or older teenagers, where you sometimes do this scheming, like if you would go and. You would tell him this and this and this, and then you would maybe invite him to the party, and then I will also be there. And Anyways, you do this uh, kind of scheming thing, and that's exactly what's happening here. It's exactly what's happening. Ruth and Naomi, or mostly Naomi, she's, she's doing this little scheming thing. Let me clarify a few things. Now The setting is this, this winnowing of the barley on the threshing floor. Uh, much of the story, actually so far, has taken place in the middle of the of the barley harvest. I think it 's something that our community can relate to a little bit is this this added excitement kind of that is in the air during harvest time. Now I know that a lot of us are not specifically farmers anymore. Many of you, several of you still are farmers, but in a, in a community like ours we kind of get it that, that during harvest time there's a bit of added excitement in the air. There's a little bit of a knowledge still that floats among us in a community like this where we kind of get it that if everything else is stripped away, the most basic and the most primary and the most important thing about life really is that we feed the world and there's this excitement that happens when the harvest is being brought in because somehow we kinda get it that this is about about feeding the world and so there's harvest time this this whole setting this whole story happens in this community during this time when there's kinda this this excitement in the air about harvest time and that's that's the time that it is this this winnowing of the barley is kinda a unique thing I mean we obviously do it a little bit differently now but back then the men of the village, they would take turns using this threshing floor. Usually it would consist of a raised platform that was set up someplace outside the village, often up on a hill a little bit where it could catch the evening breeze. And the men would deposit the sheaves of grain on the floor and separate the grain from the stalks by having oxen walk on it or maybe by beating it with sticks or whatever and that would happen during the course of the day and then once the separating had happened, the, the stalks would be put away, the straw would be put away and now you've got kind of that grain stuff left over. Um, in the evening when the breeze would pick up a little bit, this grain would be thrown, the barley would be thrown up in the air and the breeze would kind of go through it and it would take the chaff along with it and, and the, the garbage stuff would kind of float away, and the good barley would come back and settle on the winnowing floor. This activity was called the winnowing. And it was kind of the the pinnacle or the peak of of the most exciting point of the harvest, uh, when this winnowing would happen. And scholars will tell you that likely, you know, all the other times... Um, all the other activities that pertain to farming, like the seeding and 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 then some of the other stuff that would have to happen, the weeding and all of that stuff. You know, they, mostly they would have hired men taking care of all of that. But this winnowing, the owner wanted to be there. The master wanted to be there. This was kind of the peak of this whole process of harvesting. It reminds me a little bit of some and I uh, some, um, you know, wealthy. Uh, kind of farmers in the community. Um, you know, some of that other stuff, some of that other work, taking care of the machinery, doing the greasing, all of that stuff. You know, we kind of have, have people that take care of that. We've got workers that take care of that. Uh, but the combine. I want to drive the combine because that is the peak of harvest. I love the harvest. I love kind of that. And I'm not saying this critically. I'm, I'm just giving you an illustration of kind of how, how the men felt back then. The owners of the land felt back then when the winnowing happened I wanna be there and so they would make sure that they were there during the winnowing and Nomi gets this this is this is Boaz he's a wealthy farmer and during the winnowing time he's gonna be there and then not only would they be there for the winnowing but usually what would happen is after the the kind of that evening activity of throwing the grain up and the winnowing and then there would be a nice pile of good clean grain And then there would be a little bit of eating and a little bit of drinking and a little bit of socializing. And then the master, the owner, he would actually lie down and sleep beside that pile of nice, clean grain. I want to be, this is mine. This is what we've worked for all year. I want to sleep right here, partly for protection, partly for pride. And so Lloyd and Joel and others, if you want to go and sleep beside the granary one day this fall, um, feel free. You'd be doing what Boaz did back here. They slept beside the granary, beside the grain pile. Naomi knows this. This is how it's going to work. And that's where her little bit of a scheme comes in, with Ruth. Here's Ruth, here is what I would like you to do. I would like you to prepare yourself. And then in in a unique way, not unacceptable in their customs, it's important for us to say that, not unacceptable in their customs, I want you to present yourself to this kinsman redeemer. Now, what is a kinsman redeemer? Well, first of all, a kinsman, I think we can kind of get that. We've all heard the phrase, notifying or talking to the next of kin. That is kind of blood relations that are right next to you. That's the same root word, kin. So this kinsman thing is very much the same thing in its most basic definition. The kinsman was the nearest male living blood relation. That was the kinsman. There were certain duties or obligations that were part of being a kinsman. First of all, this is their culture. First of all, he was to be the blood avenger. Now that sounds a little strange. What that meant was that when a crime was committed against someone, the nearest kin, or the kinsman, was obligated to avenge the crime. This is how one commentator puts it. In the case of a murder committed, it is a positive obligation to seek a vengeance. Back in their culture. The blood of the murdered man cries up from the ground, and the cry is heard loudest by that member of the clan who stands nearest to the dead, to the kinsmen. He's the one that hears the cry the loudest. So a kinsman's job was to avenge a crime on behalf of the victim. A kinsman's job was also to be a redeemer. A kinsman redeemer. Again, the nearest living blood relation to the affected individual. And the obligation that he had as the redeemer was to take care of, or in this case, he was obligated To redeem the paternal estate, which his nearest relative might have sold through poverty. Or, to ransom his kinsman, who might have sold himself in a moment of desperation. Stopping, uh, stopping or stepping in to unselfishly help your nearest of kin in a moment of their desperation to buy them back their identity. Now, in their culture, when somebody no longer had land, or if they had sold themselves into slavery, it was as if they no longer existed. You don't have any land, you don't have any property, you, don't, you aren't your own, you're working for somebody else as a slave, you no longer really exist. And so a kinsman redeemer was actually somebody who would buy you back into existence. Buy you from a place where you really didn't matter and you really didn't actually have any identity anymore and bring you back, buy your land back and put it back into your name. Or buy you back from slavery and give you a spot in life again. A kinsman redeemer, the closest male blood relation who would do this, was obligated actually to do this for you. So Naomi believes that Boaz is in fact their kinsman redeemer. She believes that he is the closest living male blood relation. And so she devises this plan as any good parent should. Now let's be clear. Commentators agree that what she is telling Ruth to do is nothing Immoral. She is just kind of manipulating the custom of the day a little bit, hopefully to her advantage. Boaz probably slept on a mat or a skin by his grain pile and Ruth goes to where he's lying down and she lays down herself crosswise at his feet, kind of perpendicular to him. Eastern servants frequently slept in the same chamber or tent with their master in this position perpendicular at their feet was partially to avoid any kind of suggestive immorality or anything like that. And if they wanted a covering, custom allowed them the benefit of asking for a portion of their master's blanket. They all slept in the same clothes they wore during the day and so there was no indecency in a stranger or even a woman putting the corner of his master's, her master's cover over herself. That's a little bit of history. Let's keep reading. Verse 7. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. This is where the leap day thing kind of begins or happens. See, when Ruth asks him to spread the corner of his garment over her, she was very clearly offering herself to become his wife. And he understood it that way too. You can see that by the way he responds a verse or two later when he commends her for not running after the younger men, the more handsome men in the village. It's likely that Boaz was a little bit older, maybe balding a little bit. And he didn't quite have the charm that some of the younger men, perhaps, in the village did. And he commends her for that, but he understands what she is offering. She is offering to become his wife. To spread a part of one's garment over another in the East was, and actually still is, a symbolic action promising protection, and in a healthy, cultural, and appropriate way, taking ownership of. To this day, in many parts of the East, To say of anyone that he put his garment over a woman is synonymous with saying that he married her. And at all the marriages of the modern Jews and Hindus, one part of the ceremony is for the bridegroom to put a silken or cotton cloak around his bride. Still happens today. And so she offers to become his wife. But she connects that to the fact that he is her kinsman redeemer And in a way, she says to him, you have an obligation to help your next of kin, who is in a desperate situation. Let's read the next few verses, starting with verse 12. Although uh, Boaz is speaking. Although it is true that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem good, let him redeem But if he is not willing, I vow that, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized, and he said, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and put it on her. Then he went back to town. Apparently, Boaz has done a little bit of investigating already, too. Someone said, obviously, by this time, Boaz was very tired of his ruthless lifestyle. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. He's at least partially invested already himself. He already begins his taking care of obligation. The gift of barley he gave to her was very extravagant. Scholars agree that it would have been a very, very heavy load for a woman to carry back to her place. Probably equal to approximately two bushels of barley. Good barley, 48, 50 pounds a bushel. If that's the case, he was giving her approximately 100 pounds, 95 to 100 pounds of barley in her shawl. Must have been a well-constructed shawl. And she carried this back to her mother-in-law. It was a gift from Boaz, who was clearly already kind of taking this, taking care of you obligation seriously. Let's keep reading. Verse 16. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Now, scholars agree that the question that Naomi asks of Ruth here, How did it go, my daughter? Could actually also be translated, Who are you? That seems a little strange, but stick with me for a minute. What if she's kind of saying... So, are you the new Mrs. Boas? Who are you? What happened? How did it go? And I can kind of see this this exciting little exchange between these teenage girls, you know, about, I think he smiled at me. I think it's good. Actually, it doesn't just happen to teenage guys. I mean girls. It also happens to teenage guys. I remember... This is quite a few years ago. I remember one day, I was already sleeping actually in our old farmhouse. And I remember um, one of my friends coming bounding up the stairs in our old farmhouse into my bedroom. Everybody in our house was already sleeping. Um, but we had this, uh, my good friend and I, we kind of had this thing that we, we were at home at each other's places. And so it, it, the house was dark. Everybody was sleeping. He comes whipping in the door, bounds up past my parents' bedroom, up the stairs and into my bedroom. And he excitedly tells me how this prospective girl that he had been telling me about, how he felt like he had made significant progress in establishing a relationship with her that evening. So guys and girls, we are all... Um, equally excited at that stage of life. Here, Naomi and Ruth, they are, they are excited. How did it go? Tell me what happened. What did he say? How did he look? And Ruth proceeds to tell Naomi all about the story of how this whole thing transpired. He looked at me, and he smiled, and he said, and I think we might be getting married, and it's all going to be good. Um, so Ruth and Naomi share this excited moment And I believe that for Naomi, this was a continuation of that light at the end of that dark, self-absorbed tunnel. That light was becoming brighter and brighter. Maybe there is hope after all. And then the last verse in the chapter. And again, it is like Jesse says, it kind of leaves us hanging a little bit before we look at the last chapter. The last verse in the chapter, then Naomi said... Wait, my daughter. Wait until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Now let me, in conclusion, make a couple of general observations about the whole chapter. If Jesse was right last week in suggesting to us that Boaz's actions in showing mercy and grace and love and care toward Ruth are to kind of illustrate God's actions toward us, then I'm going to suggest that that illustration kind of continues into this chapter. I'm going to suggest that Boaz continues to illustrate or exemplify God, and Ruth continues to exemplify or illustrate us as humanity. Now, I don't want to take the illustration too far, but I think there are some aspects here that we we can consider if we look at it like this, with this type of an illustration in mind. So since Ruth is the one to make the move here, does that mean that as much as God is the kinsman redeemer, we also have a responsibility to make a move? And if so, is it significant also that Ruth takes time to prepare herself to meet Boaz? She washes herself, she anoints herself with perfume, She gets dressed in her best clothes. And then she takes on the posture of a submissive servant. I sometimes feel like years and years and years ago, um, this whole thing was emphasized very much, maybe too much back then, I'm not sure, but this whole idea that we have to do a lot of preparing before we can walk into the presence of God. It's almost like I have to be perfect before I can walk into the presence of God. Maybe overdone. Sometimes I feel like maybe now we've flipped over too far to the other side. Just come as you are. Yes, 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 absolutely. But maybe there's still something to the idea of preparing myself to meet God. Walking into God's presence. Taking that seriously. I'm going to allow you to think about that more and, 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 and decide what that means for yourself. Maybe even contributes to your lunchtime conversation if you're brave enough to do so. So in that process, Naomi walks into the presence of Boaz and she does this humble servant thing. She takes on the posture of a servant. servant and then she reminds Boaz of his responsibility toward her. Is there a time when we remind God of his responsibility toward us? With humility, as a servant, absolutely. But God, you said. God, you promised. God, it's time for you to come through. I need you. You said you were going to. And we kind of... In a humble way, servant-like way, but we kind of hold God's feet to the fire. I, I, I want to be careful when I say that, but, but it kind of seems like that's what is illustrated here. There's a time and a place for us to come into the presence of God, prepare ourselves, but humbly come, in, and then remind God of his promise to us. You said you were going to take care of us. You said you were going to redeem me. I need you to do that now. Because you promised you would. Prepare yourself to meet God, remind God of His obligation. And then I found this kind of interesting. Interesting thought, again, submit it to you for your thoughts. Not being content with remaining a poor widowed foreigner. All right, in quotation marks. Not being content with remaining a poor widowed foreigner. See, if full, complete citizenship is available to me, if God has promised that I can be a full citizen in his kingdom, and if I can have the fullness of God living in me, full, complete life alive in me, why would I be content remaining a poor, widowed, quote-unquote, foreigner? I have the right. He has invited me. Don't be content with just eking out a meager spiritual existence. Ask God to fulfill his obligation as a kinsman redeemer. Make me somebody who matters, God. Make me somebody who belongs in your kingdom. Give me full citizenship and full rights in your kingdom. Don't be content with being a poor widowed foreigner. And then the last activity in making the move and maybe the most difficult comes in the last verse. Be willing to wait. Tough, 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 tough. Be willing to wait. Always difficult. But believe that your kinsman redeemer is actively at work even now. That is exactly what Naomi reminds Ruth of over here. Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled. Believe that your kinsman-redeemer is at at work right now, actively at work. Wait. Wait. Now, very specifically, I was kind of wondering if this might be a word of encouragement for someone today. He will not rest until the matter is settled. He will not rest until the matter is settled. Your kinsman redeemer. How will it be settled? Wait. Wait. How will it be settled in this story? Wait. Wait till next week. Same time. Same place, Ruth chapter 4. God bless you.